Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 63 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. And welcome again, Moira. Hello, Dave. Hello, everyone. And so the theme for this podcast is looking at some of the social factors that impact on sleep. So putting the proposition that sleep's a luxury item. To be able to sleep well, you need to, in some respects, have access to a whole range of things like safe housing, good stable job, not having to work shift work or be up at night. So we're going to get into that. Is that something that you see, Moira, in the people that you're working with or in your day-to-day work? Oh, absolutely. Um, but it, we can probably sort of say it's a luxury, but it's also maybe for the privileged. But but as we know, the privileged as well suffer with sleep problems. You may have all those social factors mm. in your favour, but then there are other factors that get in the way of sleep. So for some yeah. people, it's the social determinants that are just really challenging. And even though they're doing the best they can, there are things that you can't get around. For others, it's yeah, it's a totally different approach that we need to take. And we sort of have talked offline a, b- a bit about, you know, we work with individuals in our day-to-day work, but really we're each very passionate about that bigger picture and looking at some of these social factors to work out how can we improve sleep across a population, not just in those that are coming to see us in our clinic. Absolutely. It's probably why we did the podcast in a way, wasn't it? That was it the, the frustration of the individual work and you just this next one one after the other whereas we want to make it we want education and awareness and, and policy change at a, a much higher population level which so I guess yeah this is why we do this and our other and the board work we do and yeah absolutely so one of the key resources and one of the things that triggered this podcast was a book you know I like my books do. Uh, the Social Epidemiology of Sleep. And that was edited um, in part by Dustin Duncan. And we're going to interview Dustin. I really like a quote at the start of chapter one, like right up front in the book. And I'm going to read it out. When we sleep, where we sleep, and with whom we sleep are all important markers or indicators of social status, privilege, and prevailing power relations. And that's attributed to Simon Williams, who's also an epidemiologist from University of Warwick, yeah, indeed. So, yeah, great to have um, secured an interview with Dustin. So Dustin's the Director of Social and Spatial Epidemiology Unit at Columbia University in New York. So, Dustin, thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. We, I'd like to know, how did you become involved with a book on the social epidemiology of sleep? I just finished a book called Neighbours in Health with Ichiro Kawachi, uh, who was my postdoctoral mentor and really long-time collaborator. We were in Boston. I took him to dinner to thank him for just being a good mentor. And he's just a really lovely person to work with. So we started talking about like additional projects. And literally over a, dim- over a dinner, the book was, was born. And so we basically said that we think sleep is an important topic, but it's really understudied. Um, and then we started as social epidemiologists. We said, you know, there really isn't anything that's done uh, in terms of a, a volume that has brought together the, the various major social determinants of health as it relates to sleep. And we said, you know, we should write something about it. And so we started, I mean, that, I get really excited. A lot of my friends and colleagues describe me as passionate, which is probably accurate. And I started to get really excited and I started to kind of work on this kind of preliminary proposal. And we just started back and forth, like literally that night going, um, starting to prepare for this proposal. And then we identified, you know, 
Susan Redline, who's just an amazing sleep physician and sleep epidemiologist as a close colleague to work with. And thankfully, Susan agreed. You know, I was, I was, she's super, 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 super busy. I, I didn't I didn't know that she was going to necessarily agree, but she agreed and she was a pleasure to work with. So it really happened literally at a dinner conversation. Of, and what we really identified is that, you know, sleep is super important and social epidemiology is super important. But we, we don't feel we didn't feel like those worlds were merged enough. And what we wanted to do with the book was to to really highlight both fields and in some ways develop this new field. I mean, there are many colleagues that are working at the intersection already, but we, we, we really wanted it to be and still wanted to be identified as an area that there's that we that people should go into. Before we get to that intersection, um, tell the listeners really, I guess, um, what are some of the social determinants of sleep? Social determinants of sleep, like broadly, um, like this broader social determinants of health uh, range from uh, race and ethnicity, sexual orientation and uh, gender, um, immigration, occupation, the neighborhoods you live in, discrimination. I mean, they're, they're, they're really broad. How do sleep and those social factors interact? It varies. And while preparing for this, you know, you know I thought about what to focus on. I'll talk about mainly what my work focuses on. So at Columbia, I direct um, uh, the Columbia Spatial Epidemiology Lab. So a large proportion of our work focuses on the understanding the salience of neighborhoods in health. Uh, with a focus on sleep. I, I co-wrote a chapter with uh, Dana Johnson from Emory University um, and one of my uh, long-term research assistants who's now a medical st- student in New York. Um, and what we did is we, in the book, we talked about neighborhoods as a determinant on sleep. And we talk about many different neighborhood factors. But one factor we talked about was um, neighborhood crime and safety as a particular determinant on sleep. And one kind of, uh, uh, one pathway we, we highlighted is uh, increased stress. So neighborhood safety concerns leading to increased stress, leading to perhaps rumination and or fear, um, leading to to poorer sleep quality. What about some of the environmental things in neighborhoods? Like, for example, you know, the neighborhood that's got lots of above ground metro trains running by and lighting because there's delivery vans coming to drop off things in the night and that type of thing. We've also studied and and talk about things like neighborhood noise, we we think talk and talk about and think about things like uh, air pollution. I, I think the exciting but difficult part is that sleep is so is associated with everything, which is exciting. But at the same time, there's so much that's not known. So even in this chapter that I'm referring to, we highlight several you know neighbor determinants. But in several populations, there are things that aren't known. And the other thing that's not surprising to to maybe you all is that. There's a lot more work that needs to be conducted, especially using designs that really help us answer the questions. So for example, still the vast majority of studies on neighbors and health broadly, but including when it comes to sleep, have focused on or utilized, excuse me, cross-sectional designs. We know that that's like, you know, from basic Epi 101, it's just not sufficient in terms of, you know, getting anything to do with causal inference. And once you get away from that sort of neighborhood type of thing, what about things like job security, I know one of the things you talked about in the book was sort of linked in with job security is, you know, dollar per hour reimbursement versus salary type of work. How do those sort of factors fit in? Yeah, so certainly the the jobs that one has, including like decisional control um, overall in terms of stress, but also literally the jobs we have in terms of the hours we work. I have the luxury of generally deciding when I work. I mean, of course, not completely, right? My class schedules are dictated sometimes and there are certain obligatory meetings, but generally I can decide when I work, which of course also means I can decide when I sleep. 
but there are certain jobs, right, that people don't have that autonomy and literally work during prime sleep hours, right? So certainly another factor that we talk about in the book and that I've been thinking a lot about, including as it comes to the COVID pandemic and our, our lives now um, in, in the States, especially is race. And race is something that we talk a lot about in our group and think a lot about in our group. But one thing we've, we've thought a lot, a lot about in the pandemic is increased police presence and activity, especially at the peak of the pandemic. More explicitly, Black Americans, you know, being targeted by police, um, for example, by not, for not wearing masks and perhaps disproportionately, right? So you see two different groups of people, they're both not wearing masks and Black people are disproportionately more harassed and thinking about how that has impacted their lives, um, but also, you know, lives vis-a-vis sleep. And what about outside of, say, urban areas uh, or even different cultures, like non-Western cultures? Do similar social factors impact on sleep? As you know, the vast majority of work is really of research broadly. Research enterprise has been in Western cultures, mainly in the U.S., uh, then I would say U.K. slash Australia, with scattering of work at other places. So there are very few studies in Asia, relatively speaking, that I'm aware of at least, very few studies in sub-Saharan Africa, and very few studies in the Caribbean or other places like that. But I would say broadly, the, the major social returns on, on sleep and, and other health outcomes are, are similar. You know, I think there may be nuance to different societies where some may be more pronounced and are relevant and are salient than others. So for example, in certain societies when there's less variation in race and ethnicity, we wouldn't expect race to be that salient factor, right? So for example, I think about the Caribbean maybe, um, or certain parts of the Caribbean, certainly not all Caribbean islands and my parents are Caribbean, but in certain Caribbean islands, there are more predominantly black than others. You know, some are more Indian race people or, or whites, but, you know, but it's certain societies, of course, there's, there's going to be factors that are more salient than not. Um, but I would say overall, yeah, these are the, the major social returns on sleep, which I think are, which are salient across contexts and societies. But I would say, you know, in terms of the evidence, the evidence is stronger and more robust and, and there for Western cultures. I'm assuming and slash hoping that students are going to be listening to this. And so I would encourage like, you know, the next generation of researchers and people interested in social factors and sleep to take that work on. And there's this whole invisible world that happens at night, you know, and I, living in quiet suburbia, you think at nighttime, everything's just quiet. Everyone's in their homes asleep. But if you're actually out on the street, there's delivery people doing things. There's, you know, there's people often that might live in lower income neighborhoods that have had to commute quite a lot of distance and are working overnight to provide these services invisibly for people who are having their comfortable sleep in the suburbs. And, you know, I do a fair bit of work in India and there's exactly that same feel is, is mirrored in India. There's, you know, people quietly sleeping in their comfortable homes, but a whole subculture of other people busily doing things at night that are just making things seem to seamlessly work during the day. And that really, for me, just highlights that difference in sleep in those groups. I think I think about some of the work of a of a colleague of mine that focuses on sex workers, and I'm I'm that expert on sex workers, so pardon my like the ignorance in terms of terminology and or like deep content knowledge. But my assumption would be that you know sex workers don't always work in you know traditional. I'll say sex workers sex work doesn't necessarily happen during traditional hours. I'm assuming that sex work also happens you know at nighttime or during peak you know sleeping hours. And so if you think about that as a profession, right, which it is, it would certainly impact their sleep, right? 
not just of their of their clients, but the actual the the person who's engaging in sex work. So I would imagine that you know that certainly one's job it has to beyond the stressor the unique stressors also the the literal hours that you work what would impact how and when you sleep or thinking about like a nurse and you know nurses who work in the, in you know throughout the night right or you know like a literal 12 hour shift from 8 to 8 you know it would obviously impact your sleep given that you'll be working when most people are sleeping it's really fascinating it's good to talk about this population based stuff you know, and societal level Whereas David and I and, and people who work as clinicians, we work very much on this individual basis with people's individual concerns. And it's really great to highlight these bigger, you know, broader issues and these social factors. So is there anything that can be done, say, for people like, you know, clinicians, researchers who are, you know, we're not working, we're not epidemiologists, we're not working on big, bigger factors. But I guess what, yeah, your insights and how, what we could do to help individuals but with, with coping with these large societal factors when i would say familiarizing yourself with the social context and or recognizing the social context as a potentially salient aspect of people's lives mm. right you know I, I think my training has highlighted to me that you know the major determinants on health aren't within hospitals and clinics it's really within neighborhoods and social networks um, but i had that bias because that's how that was my training but i think as clinicians recognizing that their patient that patients you know have lives with outside of their hospitals you know outside of that clinical encounter um, not to say that clinical encounter isn't important or that healthcare isn't important certainly it's important um, including in societies like ours that isn't a given we don't have universal healthcare here of course so it certainly matters but i would say recognizing that it matters and talking to your patients you know suggesting that your patient walk around you know after work to reduce stress you know in their home neighborhoods may not be a proper sleep health intervention if they live in a neighborhood that's marked by crime and violence. And so actually one of my uh, uh, students, we, we have a paper that we're finalizing right now where we show in a sample of young gay men that many aspects of neighborhoods that relate to like crime and safety concerns are associated with different aspects of sleep health. And so like, you know, if I was a clinician and then this, you know, young gay man was coming to me and saying like, you know, I can't sleep or, and or I know they can't sleep, I, the, the data would show then, you know, that I shouldn't suggest that they walk around or do physical activity in their neighborhood as a way to promote them to sleep better at night. Traditional public health and, and medicine, we focus on these individual factors like sleep, and we don't recognize or we don't give enough weight to their context. And yes, sleep is an individual behavior, right? Like I am going to sleep, but it, it happens within a context, like all health and health behaviors. And I would just encourage, you know, the listeners and, and the students who are listening, especially, and junior researchers to not only recognize that, but to, to study that. There's so much that we don't know, number one. And then two, there's a lot that we don't know in particular populations. And I would say the population that need the, the work the most, um, such as marginalized communities. And so I would encourage the students who are listening, especially to take that work on because it's really important. And, and I'm not a policymaker, but my sense is, is that for these changes that I'm, that I'm advocating to be done, there has to be some type of knowledge base there. Another reason we write these books is, is certainly like we're interested in the topic and we want to, you know, study them and see, you know, what summarize what's what the, the state of the field, but also we want to see the field change. And so part of the, the 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 reason for writing the book was to really inspire or to hopefully inspire the next generation of researchers to really change the field, right? Like these distinct fields don't have to be distinct. And partially we wrote the book because we don't think that they should be distinct. 
we think they should be really commingled because they're so inherently linked. Recognition and awareness and education is is the key, do you think, for shifting these sort of, oh, so I suppose, sh- yeah, shifting our focus perhaps or being more broad, being, being broader in our focus? Not necessarily shifting the focus, but I would say making sure that you ask the question, you ask questions about people's lives mm-hmm. and their lives outside of their, their kind of sleeping environment lives. Um, so, you know, not just about like, you know, are you looking at, I'm holding my iPad now, are you looking at your iPad before you go to sleep? Are you looking at your phone? Like not just asking those things, which of course we know matter, but also asking about their worries and concerns and what they do in their lives and, and how that may be impacting their sleep, right? We know that stress is a major determinant of health, including sleep health. You know, our work and many other groups show that. And so, you know, there may be unique stresses that they're experiencing that need to be addressed. And it, and it may not be just stressors at the individual level. So for example, a stress of like, I don't know, but it could be a broader level stress. So for example, work stress or, you know, neighborhood stress or, you know, or a financial stress. Yeah, in some respects, if I could have one of your grad students sitting with me in clinic, just keep mm-hmm. tapping That's on right. the shoulder and I go, well, I, th- I think this is going on. And they're going, <laughs> but hang on. They've got this type of employment. They live in this type of neighborhood. There's these cultural factors and family factors going right. on. It had totally changed the way I approached That's right. Them. And are recognizing, okay, this person's an immigrant. So they had these unique stressors, right? Those kinds of things. No, I, I, think it's, I think it's super important. I think sometimes as a non-clinician, my sense is, is that we put all our weight on the clinical encounter and we almost expect that the brief clinical encounter to be this transformative experience that is like almost mm-hmm. a panacea. And then it cures someone. So it's like, oh, you've been knighted. Yay. You know, you've met with your clinician, you know, whatever. And now all of a sudden you're going to be better. But the work all can't be done at the clinical counter. Like there has to be that, epi- that base epidemiology research, but there also needs to be, you know, policy changes that happen. Right. So it's great that we wrote this book and it's super wonderful. And it was definitely fun to do. And Achiro is so lovely to work with. And Susan's great. But if we don't see any policy changes in some way, it would be meaningless. Right. I mean, from a student standpoint, yes, you know, you can you think about study design and, you know, the epi and those kinds of things. But in terms of like the next steps to improve sleep health, if, 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 if those policy changes aren't done and are incorporated, um, including work policies. So they're not all national policies. Right. Or, or local policies. Some of them, some of them, in, including like the, the work based determinants, you know, are, are can be, you know, company specific. And if those changes aren't made, then in some ways it's it wouldn't have served its full purpose. I think that's a good way to say it. Um, so I, I, th- yeah. I think we need all. I think we need clinicians. I think we need researchers. But we also need the policymakers um, mm-hmm. to step up and to to advocate for and ensure that these policy changes happen. And it's interesting for a lot of people we see with sleep problems. They have this idealized idea, you know, that we have in Western societies about what sleep is. It's eight hours and it's in this place under these circumstances at these times. So it's got spatial time sort of determinants to it. Now, if you have other social factors that mean you can't sleep at that desired idealized time for that idealized duration, you have to have a different concept of sleep. Maybe it's an opportunistic type of concept of sleep. I'll take it when I get it. It may not occur at the opportune time. It may not be an idealized sort of circumstances. So how at a sort of broader level can we help to soften that message about sleep is it's got to be this idealized sleep, which is only possible if you're in the luxurious position yeah. of having all those social factors lined up versus sleep that's okay and you know the best I can do if you've got these other factors that are hard. I think that's a great question. And I would say, you know, it's big the need broader policy changes that promote health, but also that promote sleep health. So 
it doesn't have to be the case that neighborhoods have a lot of crime and violence. Like that doesn't have to be the case, right? There can be, and I'm not a criminologist, but I'm aware of like, you know, interventions and or policy interventions that reduce those things. So for example, increase police presence in neighborhoods, neighborhood watch programs. And, you know, while those programs may reduce crime and, and, and safety concerns, which is, you know, important, they may also promote uh, better sleep. And so I would say, you know, it's important for, for me as epidemiologist and also, you know, other scientists to advocate and help highlight to policymakers the salience of the broader social context, I highlight especially that these are levers that can be changed. Um, so for example, work hours, right? And work stresses, you know, maybe there are things, there are institutional policies that can be changed to, one, improve people's lives overall, but also improve their sleep. Thanks very much for those really helpful insights, Dustin. Sure. Really great that we're able to interview Dustin. What were some of your reflections about the interview? Yeah, I really enjoyed that chat with Dustin. I guess it highlights that what we've already known, that the clinicians and the researchers need to really take note of each other's worlds and, and listen to each other and think about the bigger picture. I, like, I think he literally said something that the four, the four walls of the, the clinic and looking beyond those. So a timely reminder for everyone. Uh, I think I'm already tuned into that, but I don't know whether we're encouraged or to do that at our, in our university training or our meetings. It's all—it's very much an individual focus, and we wonder sometimes about what we can do about the, that broader picture and, and thinking about people's social status and the, and the things that are just beyond their control. Really, they're coming in with this issue, and it's sometimes societal or systemic, and and we're, we're throwing individual. Uh, solutions at it and yeah what about you yeah I agree and I think it is something we're often a bit too blind to in the clinic and certainly not as much of a focus um, about a lot of those social factors when we're thinking about sleep in in our training and like you really excited to have that discussion and start to sort of bring together that clinical way of thinking and the epidemiologists but also a little disappointing that it's in its infancy and it's not as far along as what we might have hoped. And Dustin's yeah. book does a great job of pulling together the current state of where things are at, but we still got a way to go in terms of being able to get that data, show what these factors do and the impact they have on sleep, which in turn will then be able to drive policy changes and really make a difference at a population level. Yeah, for sure. And I know that we have teams of people in, in Australia thinking about this too, simultaneously. So we, we do need to, in addition to say, you know, Sleep Health Foundation and other people who are looking at advocacy and you know lobbying politicians and we we just we need to perhaps really liaise with some key research groups to get get proper data and get a get a really good feel for all this uh, and what we can yeah what we can do at a, at a very high level so i can highly recommend the book we've been talking about the social epidemiology of sleep and edited by dustin duncan ashiro kawachi and susan redline So Dustin, while we have you, we'd love you to give us the clinical tip. My tip for clinicians would be to one, recognize that the social context matters. And then and, and in that recognition, you know, asking their patients about their lives outside of the clinic walls and that patient uh, that clinical encounter, and to incorporate that knowledge into their recommendations. And so, you know, as a spatial epidemiologist, it's super easy for me to Think about neighborhoods, the resilience of neighborhoods, but but this you know it 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 may not be as obvious to a clinician that you know one's neighborhood can influence their patients' sleep patterns and 
sleep quality and so to ask about that and incorporate that into their recommendations. So, you know, if they live in a high stress neighborhood, let's say with lots of crime and violence, for them to recognize that, not that I anticipate that clinicians will be able to change every, you know, each one of their patients, you know, neighborhood structures, but at least incorporate that into the recommendation. So if they live in a neighborhood that's a lot of crime and violence and not advocate for walking around that neighborhood to reduce their stress levels. In fact, there, there may be something else that they can you know, recommend that would promote sleep health overall. What's your pick of the month, Dave? So this one's an essay on dreams and, for want of a better term, dream hacking that's in E.ON, and I'll post the link in the show notes. And it really talks about how the ability to have some lucidity around dreams, which we've talked about in a recent podcast. And there's another recent paper, which may be another pick for me in in coming months, about the um, increased creativity by being aware of some of the visual imagery and dream imagery around sleep onset. But using some of that ability to take insights from dreams to add to creativity, and that's a really positive Mm. thing. But the frightening Mm. thing is in the same article, they're talking about the commercial world is looking at that for advertising. So that suggestibility of (laughs) Of people having, for example, particular Mm. brands being played as they're drifting off to sleep or prompts about different brands and they would then have better recall about different brands. Of course. You know, lots of commercial groups looking at actually manipulating our dreams to help change the way we think about commercial products and sell more products. So that's the really scary. Isn't that good old-fashioned brainwashing that maybe I thought was um, unethical enough to not be allowed in this era? It's it's on for young and old. But I really really (laughs) like that essay because they do point out both the good and the bad. And Mm. I think, you know, like everything, the more we we sort of are aware that that's – an issue, we can be mm. part of that conversation in the sleep field and also looking out yeah. for that. So, and what have you been listening to before you go to sleep, Moira, and make, making some purchases? <laughs> yeah, gosh, I'll be very careful now what I, I watch or listen to. What, what about a pick of the month for you, Moira? Well, I wanted to give a shout out to the Sleep Health Foundation Emerging Sleep Hero Awards. We, we, had, we ran that recently um, for the second time. It's sort of been a bit of a lockdown pivot to have to, you know, have an event that they can be um, easily done online and it was great success last year and this year was an equally wonderful success and we've had uh, we've got our winners and um, I'll, I'll post a link to to that in in the show notes we've had um, the, the, I'll just talk about the our, our first prize winner which was Anastasia Sarev she's, she's actually a clinical research associate at the Lambert Institute or in the it's called the Lambert Initiative for cannabinoid therapeutics and it's uh, attached a sort of a research center attached to the University of Sydney and she's also doing a PhD at the Wilcock Institute of Medical Research so she's got a lot of affiliations and she was just doing some wonderful research looking at um, the clinical applications of cannabinoids in a range of conditions with a focus on sleep disorders um, her current research is this clinical trial looking at the effects of cannabinoid medicine on sleep and daytime function and people with a chronic insomnia disorder. So well done, Anastasia. It's exciting work. She did a wonderful presentation. Just an incredible amount of up-and-coming, um, well, sleep heroes, we call them, but, you know, really uh, switched on, bright researchers who are doing some uh, array, a real array of different types of research in different fields across sleep. And the idea is that the idea of the Sleep Hero Award is that not only are they obviously they're academically capable, et cetera, but being able to put their research into plain language that the general population will be able to understand it. So putting together a, you know, a short presentation and 
So that's what we want at the Sleep Health Foundation, people starting to think very early while they're, you know, in their postgraduate studies, being able to translate their research into, you know, practice, into practical key, clear messages for the for the general person. So Yeah, and congratulations, Moira. I know you've been heavily involved in organising that and both yourself and the Sleep Health Foundation have done a great job. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's a bit of a, my, my, one, of, yeah, one of my babies and I, I really, really like it. What's coming up in future episodes, Dave? So our next episode, um, we're actually going to talk about borderline personality disorder. It's been a pick and a topic I've been sort of looking at over the last mm. couple of months. Um, and so really great interview about that that will be in the next episode. I've also had a couple of really nice suggestions. So we had someone email in suggesting looking at the effects of sleep deprivation on long-term health. And I reckon that's a good one because that's where mm. the media often is, you know, if you don't sleep, yeah. five ways sleep's going to kill you. Yeah, <laughs> um, but to try yeah. and get a bit, you know, a bit more of a measured and balanced understanding mm. of that, and mm. then I've had another suggestion about long COVID, and I think that's a really good topic because that's something that's emerging, and you know, hopefully, as there's less of the acute crisis with the pandemic, mm. unfortunately, we're going to be faced with a lot of people with long COVID and sleep issues will be a part mm. of that. So having an understanding about that will be helpful. Oh, excellent. So thanks for listening once again, and um, send out send us any suggestions for uh, either you know topics etc at podcasts at sleephub.com.au. We love to hear from you, and we love to feature early career researchers and help people hear about their work. And if you like the podcast, review us on iTunes, subscribe, and tell your friends and work colleagues about the podcast. Thanks a lot. Bye. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 